We are in a, in a, we've begun a series, which means that we're sort of moving through a book or a letter of the Bible and seeing what its overall message says and then diving into certain parts and pieces of it to, to um, see how this ancient text can benefit us in our spiritual lives today. One of the benefits that congregations enjoy when a pastor moves through a text is that the pastor doesn't have the privilege of avoiding difficult passages. <laughs> so if you'll notice the schedule next week, I'm talking about gospel masculinity, and the following week, gospel femininity. I'm not looking forward to either of those sermons, just so you know. But this week, I'm returning to a, a, an overview of the book. Last week, we... We did an overview and essentially worked out a theology, if you will, or, or a philosophy that, that undergirds this book, 1 Timothy, in the New Testament, this letter in the New Testament. And in developing that, we were able to see what our missional, how, how we stay focused on our mission. As a historical note, when I was in college as a freshman, I tried about every club I could try within probably the first 15 weeks, first semester. And as I was thinking back on this, I tried to remember some of them. And I remember the Audubon Society, the Interior Design Club. I don't know how those two relate, but I signed up for Russian and dropped it. I was in the small business startup club. Um, I tried to draw comics for the university newspaper. I mean, I was all over the map. And sometime midway through my freshman, first semester of my freshman year, my mom called. And she said, Philip, we love you. We're not concerned that you're doing bad things. She probably didn't know everything that I was doing, but that's what she said. But we are concerned that you're perhaps not doing the best things. And so now I know that she was, as a mom, she was telling me her version of that old saying, the good is the enemy of the better and the best. I was doing good. I mean, there's nothing wrong necessarily with the Audubon Society or the Interior Design Club or, the, or taking Russian or drawing comics for the university, or whatever else I happened to have been doing at the time. But the question is a matter of priorities, isn't it? And that's what we come to this morning, is this question of doctrinal priorities. As I mentioned last week, I gave a theological overview of 1 Timothy and explained that a gospel-centered mission will focus on theological basics. At first glance, Timothy might seem like a kind of an instruction manual for church order, the, the kind of thing that you would only refer to if you had to change a tire. But on a closer inspection, you discover that it has a profound background of foundational truth for all of the, the instructions about order. There's a real depth to Timothy. One question I didn't address last week is how a church is to hold on to these foundational truths. How do we maintain them? This is a major issue for the Apostle Paul, 
who writes to Timothy right out of the gates to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. That's the first thing he says. So, hi, how are you doing? By the way, make sure no one teaches strange doctrines. That's why I left you there. That's your job. And so for all of the instructions on kind of order in the church life, this is really at the forefront. How do we keep our priorities? Or as I've heard it said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So I'm going to address or answer this question about doctrinal priorities with three points. First, the content. The content of our doctrinal priorities needs to be simple. And that will somewhat recap some things that I said last week. Second, the loss of those priorities is, is certain. Because of who we are and because of how we're wired, it's guaranteed that we're going to move off target and begin to lose our focus and our priorities. And then third, to recover our priorities requires leadership. It requires strong leadership. And we'll conclude with that point. So let me uh, read scripture or read a portion of it. I'll be all over the book of 1 Timothy again this morning, but I'm going to read you a section in chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. And I think I'll read down to verse 7. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. This is God's eternal word. It cannot be broken. It is true. As I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different or strange doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Amen. Let's pray. God, we can already see the relevance of this text just by using even the little bit, tiniest bit of imagination. All of us have been in that position of making confident assertions of things that we're fairly ignorant of. And so, Lord, we're praying this morning that you would drive home to our hearts the importance of our priorities. Help us to know what those are and how to, how to stay on them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's simple content. The content of our doctrinal priorities are simple. My wife likes the magazine Real Simple. The reason is because the stuff in it is simple. It's quick. It's practical. The articles aren't long. They're usually useful. And it's not bogged down with a whole lot of theory. So I've wondered from time to time, scratching my head, so to speak, thinking, why on earth did she marry me? Because I am not simple. I am a complicated human being. So the last week, we asked the question, is our mission gospel-centered? And here's what I said. I gave a very simple answer. 
We need to have the foundation of our mission to be on Jesus, the person of Jesus. We need to work out this mission in the context of a redeemed family. And then finally, our goal as we're carrying out this mission is eternal life. Jesus, redeemed family, eternal life. It's not very complicated, but it's not easy. These points summarize the theology of 1 Timothy, and I did that a little bit last week. I showed you that in 1 Timothy, there's three or four main theological points. God is the Savior and the only source of deliverance. Sinners need salvation from God. The salvation can only come from Jesus because he is the one who gave his life as a ransom for all, that all might be saved. And finally, our task is to live in light of this great redemption. On the other hand, the teaching of the false teachers at Ephesus was not simple. Similar to some of the other opponents that Paul takes on in the New Testament, like Colossians, the false teachers are characterized by an interest in myths. I read that just now in the text. They're, they're fascinated with myths. And also in this thing that Paul calls endless genealogies. They're concerned with the law. They have a, there's a Jewish orientation to the false teaching. They're very preoccupied with the law, the law of Moses. That would either be the Ten Commandments or any number of the 600 or so odd other commandments that are in the Pentateuch. They're also interested in something that are, that are called antitheses, antitheses. This is a, an element of, of ancient Greek kind of speculation, antitheses, that they identify as knowledge. You can see this in 1 Timothy 6.20. They also have an interesting tendency, in light of all this, perhaps not so surprising, towards controversy, argumentation, and speculation. They're constantly stirring up trouble and making arguments with all of their musings, all of their speculations, all of their pursuits in these areas. They also tend to be deceptive, he teaches us, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. And in light of all this, we shouldn't be surprised that there's immorality amongst the false teachers. 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. They're actually destroying their faith by going down these paths. And they're trying to get material gain by their false teachings, 1 Timothy 6.5. And part of their doctrine or their content is a harsh treatment of the body. The word for that is asceticism. So they're advising people to, to be very strict with physical appetites, including forbidding marriage, including not uh, making rules about what you're allowed to eat, and some believe that they're actually teaching that the resurrection had already happened. We think that they're probably mostly Jewish, so they're religious people. In our context, they would be, if you will, good, upstanding Presbyterians, right? They, they, they know the Westminster Confession of Faith. They, they know all the ins and outs of all the teachings. And Paul regarded their teaching as opposed to Christ's teaching and the apostolic teaching and to the truth, 2 Timothy 2.18. Not very simple, is it? Pretty, pretty Byzantine, if you will. It's, it's like a maze trying to work your way in and out of all of these things that they're doing. How does this apply to us, this first point? Well, there's a principle in programming, and I think also in mathematics, and I'm neither a mathematician or a programmer, that says the best solution is what? The simplest. Or, 
for navigation, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Don't take the back way if you're trying to get there quickly. Get, you know, take the straight line as the crow flies. And we are good, I am good, at making things complicated. Just ask my kids. <laughs> I think there's a reason why chicken soup for the soul was such a, such a bestseller. Everyone is looking for a simple answer to the problems that otherwise seem to defy every angle of attack. There's something in me, and maybe you can relate to this. You just want a simpler lifestyle. Not so many appointments. Not so many errands. Not so many problems. Not so much difficulties in my relationships. Have you ever talked to someone? Or have you ever said these words when someone's asking you about a, a dating relationship or some relationship? You just say, oh, it's just so complicated. Don't you hate that? Don't you hate how complicated things get? Somewhere I have a little book that's about this big, and it's called Advice for Fathers with Daughters. It couldn't be more than 14 pages long. And it probably sells for like 10 bucks at Barnes & Noble. You know what I mean? It's one of those things. That, and, but it's got great pictures in it. You know, there's a, a picture of a, of a girl holding her, her dad's pinky or something like that. And, and it's basically fortune cookie. I mean, it's just one sentence like, you know, tell your daughter she's beautiful. Turn the page, right? It's, it's nothing more complicated than that. You know, I think I make my relationship with God more complicated than it needs to be. Sometimes I think I would benefit, if you will, from a Bible that's about this big and has 15 pages in it. You may not be tracking the lost genealogies of Old Testament figures like Enoch, or trying to discern which figures in Greek mythologies had sex with humans and what demigods were produced, basically the ancient Greek version of the soap opera. You may not be doing that. And that, I think, is one of those two things, or both, is what Paul means when he says, endless genealogies and myths. But the simple gospel, the simple faith, and by simple, I mean not complex, not multi-intergrained, sub-pointed, footnoted, all of that stuff. It's too rare in my life, and I think among us. We crowd it out by all the other things. Remember my mother, Philip. Let's just include us all now. Desert Springs, people of Desert Springs. I'm not worried that you're doing bad things. I'm wondering, are you doing the best things. So I can offend everyone, let me mention a variety of sacred cows. <laughs> Conservative politics, homeschooling, Christian schooling, public schooling, liberal activism, war protest, working on your marriage, parenting classes, listening to talk radio, arguing about the use of instruments in worship or drum kits, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the shorter catechism, for the really tough, the larger catechism, <laughs> environmental stewardship and recycling, feminism, Zen Christianity, healing, the five points of Calvinism or of Arminianism, listening to sermon podcasts or playing golf. <laughs> Did I get everybody? <laughs> 
We make it awfully complicated. The real epiphany for me in this book is that what Paul was worried about was the complication of the simple message, that they lost the priority of the gospel. That's what I've really learned in this, in this book in preparing for these messages. Are all of these things that I read bad? Well, maybe some of them. I'm not going to tell you which ones I think are bad today. But I guarantee you, every one of them is secondary. They, if, if they're good, they're good because they're implications of the gospel. They are not the gospel. But what do we spend most of our time worrying about? All these secondary things. We take for granted the thing that God has told us to hang on to with dear life, for dear life, and sort of assuming that, we could foray out into these unexplored territories. It's kind of like the husband who takes for granted his relationship with his wife and then sort of forays out into these other interests. He's in for a rude awakening in about 10, 15, 20 years of marriage, isn't he? Our distinctive as a church is not Calvinism. Our distinctive as a church is that we were dead and now we're alive. We were lost, and now we're found. I once was blind, but now I see. It's simple, but it's not easy. So we've seen, first of all, that the content of our doctrinal priorities is quite simple, but we've noticed along the way, and this really, I think it leads well into my second point, the loss of our priorities is certain. It's guaranteed that we will lose our priorities. It isn't rocket science, but they are hard to keep. If First Timothy were just a manual of church order, maybe it would be easy for those of us that like check boxes, right? Just give me a list and I'll do it. Okay, elders, okay, deacons, okay, women in the church, okay, mercy ministry, okay, we're, we got it. The letter, however, is about the truth, the gospel, and the priority that Timothy and the leaders in Ephesus and all the people in Ephesus are to make on the gospel and to keep it free from any impurity, any alteration, and any distraction. Because I and we as human beings are fallen in our minds, in our feelings, in our emotions, in our appetites, and in our actions, we all too quickly depart from the simple faith into all kinds of grad school classes that have no relevance to our main job. Keeping it simple is never as simple as it seems. Kiss, remember? Keep it simple, silly. <laughs> my, I thought about saying the other word, but my two-year-old daughter has informed me that that word is a bad word, Papa. So. Samuel Johnson is reported to have said, I would have written a shorter letter if I had more time. <laughs> Which he, I think, was speaking to pastors in that mo on that point. <laughs> I won't tell you out loud how long my first sermon was, but if you ask afterwards, I will. I'm familiar with, a, as a former science teacher, I'm familiar with something called chaos theory. I'm only familiar with it, but as I understand it, there is a, there's an apparent randomness at the core of everything. 
And yet, in an amazing way, this, this seeming randomness results in sort of this beautiful order of chaos. So I take this to mean that there's something simple behind the chaos. Hmm. So in this sense, the chaos can be beautiful, can it? But it is beautiful only to the extent that there's order behind the chaos. What? What if there was no order behind the chaos? What if it was pure chaos? I like one of my favorite old poets and hymn writers, William Cooper. Behind a frowning providence, behind the chaos, is a smiling face. There is a simple order behind all of the difficulties. Without knowing this and left to the reality of our brokenness, our selfishness, Everything is irretrievably and unredeemably tangled and complicated. The image that I had on this was thinking of fishing, and I haven't done much fishing, but you know, you see that, that fishing line that, that, uh, that fishermen leave on the shore of the lake or of the beach? It's like, there is no hope for this thing. I'm you know, cutting bait. I think this is why so many truth, truth seekers come to the point of despair before they start seeking Christ. Because they keep seeking. Maybe you can relate to this. You, you keep seeking and you keep seeking and you keep opening the door and there's nothing. You keep opening the door and there's nothing. You keep opening the door and there's nothing. You try you know, Islam. You try Judaism. You try meditation. You try physical fitness. You try financial planning. God help us. So that's why I say, while the content is simple, the loss is pretty much guaranteed, isn't it? Our nature as proud, self-sufficient human beings guarantees that we're going to look for something else. How does this apply to you? Well, it doesn't. I think just like in Paul's day, we are motivated by greed, by pride, by self-interest and ambition. We're not naturally wired to love one another, are we? We're not naturally wired to seek one another out. And so the net result is that we create chaos in our relationships and in the environment and the planet and the universe. We're messing it all up and we don't even have to try. It's just first foot out of the bed, we're messing something up. As a result, keeping it simple is very, very difficult, if not impossible. And that is the same today as it was with Paul. I love the poetry of the late singer-songwriter Rich Mullins, and one of my favorite poem songs that he wrote is called Growing Young. And there's a phrase in that song where he says, we have sinned and grown old. And you know, age isn't so much the number of your birth certificate. It's a mindset, isn't it? And there are people that are young that are very, very old. And there are people that are old that are very, very young. What is it about sin and age and growing up that causes us to lose the simple gospel? My wife and I have something called Memories and Milestones, and she tells me now it's 17 pages long in Microsoft Word. And whenever we hear something funny or irritating, we'll quick jot it down in this file. And when we were first parents, this is one of the few advices, a piece of advice we actually kept. Write it down, you'll forget. And so the other day at Christmas time, my two-year-old was walking around the house singing Feliz Navidad, Feliz Navidad, from my bottom to my heart. 
Is that not funny? I love that. Only a two-year-old would say that. I mean, who would think of that? What is it that we love about that? It's so simple. It's so, it's so easy. It's so innocent, isn't it? For myself, I can only speak for myself here, but I, as a pastor and a, someone that's dealt with souls, I imagine that this relates to many of you. I've been hurt. I'm disillusioned. And I've suffered. And as a result, as the saying goes, I've tripped, fallen, twisted my ankle, and I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen again. Once bitten, twice shy. So instead of staying open and reaching out to the only source of comfort in life and in death, as Heidelberg says, which is the Lord Jesus, we reach inward, we retreat, we take more control to make sure, to ensure, to guarantee that that thing won't happen again. I'm not going to get hurt by a Christian again. I'm not going to go to church again. I'm not talking to, par- I'm not talking to my parents again. I'm not going to reveal something personal again. So we become tight and we close ourselves off to the possibility, possibility, I say, that God may in fact be at work in this very place where we are afraid. And this definitely happens to churches. It actually is a, is a cancer that can overtake a congregation, a whole congregation. And people become so afraid and so hurt that they just shut each other out and they go through the motions. So as a church, have we sinned and grown old? That's the question. My third point, we've seen that our doctrinal distinctives has a simple content and that it's certain that we're going to lose that, but the hope is that it can be restored, but that takes leadership. It takes leadership. So I'm calling this third point the leadership restoration of our doctrinal distinctives. So here's how it works. This is the mechanics or the equation. If we lose our distinctives by pride and by selfishness, we regain those distinctives, that simple faith, by humility, which is leadership. And that's the lie. The lie is that by being humble, by being transparent, by being vulnerable, we're actually going to be subject to loss. But Jesus said, the greatest among you should be your servant. And he said, the kind of leaders that you're looking for in First Peter are under-shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are men who, are, who themselves in their own lives appear to be the most dependent on Jesus. I mentioned last night at the congregational meeting something that just struck me. It's one of those things that, like all of a sudden I was hit with a memory. You have two ruling elders in this church. Both of them prayed multiple times in our prayer meeting. I can't tell you how rare that is. And you say, well, what? Elders are supposed to be men of prayer. Oh, yeah, but they're not. Too often they're not. So restoring our doctrinal priorities comes from the humility that develops from redeemed human nature. Again and again, Paul exhorts Timothy, the pastor, 
to work hard at teaching, exhorting, urging the truths, the simple truths of the gospel, truths that transform, truths that save. Let's refer to Timothy here and see a couple of examples of this. 1 Timothy 1.18. This charge, Paul writes, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding the faith and a good conscience. This is, this is good stuff. This is like Beowulf. This is like Braveheart, you know. This is where the guys go, yeah, all right. Holding the faith and a good conscience. And then he gives the counterexample. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Wow. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. This is the leadership restoration now. Ephesus is struggling. Paul writes to Timothy. Here, Timothy already knows what to do. He's writing it down so Timothy would be emboldened and so that everybody else would be emboldened as well. If you put these things before the brothers, 4 verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, that's like this, right? That's sort of like displaying it, making sure everybody sees. When I read a story to my kids, what do I do when I come to a picture? I pause with each child to make sure that he or she soaks it up until you know, he's done, because every kid wants to notice all those little details. And then I move to the next. I put it before my children. So put these things before the brothers. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith. If you write in your Bibles, you can make that a capital T, capital F. That's the gospel. It's those three or four points that I mentioned last week and that I've reiterated this morning. That's the faith that Paul is referring to. And of the good doctrine that you have followed. That's this week's sermon, right? How do we keep our doctrinal priorities? We need leadership. Because we slip. Look down at verse 16. This will be my last reference on this third point. Keep a close watch, 416. Watch carefully yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. I'm a runner. And I was told that every lap, in the, the, my, my event in high school track was the mile. Every lap you have to feel an acceleration as you pass the start line in order to maintain the same pace. You have to feel like you're speeding up in order to keep the same pace. Pity the guy that actually has to gain time on the, on the person in front of him. You really got to be, you know, working at it. You've got to persist in it. You've got to push yourself. You've got to work at this. Christianity is not a hobby. It is a lifetime labor. It is hard. Persist in this, for by so doing, you'll save yourself and your hearers. This isn't to invalidate the, the cross. This is just saying, God's going to use your persistence to bless the people around you and to bless you. I've already alluded to this, but this word, the faith, in 4.6, the word in Greek is pistis. And Paul uses this in the pastoral epistles especially, not to talk about my faith, but to talk about the faith. And so there's a content, there's a, there's a set of things that Paul has in mind when he says, 
the faith. And I've tried to, to spend last Sunday and part of this Sunday in, in telling you what I think those things are, the content that he's advancing here. So it underscores what the false teachers was, were doing because he's saying the false teachers are attacking this. They're attacking point one of my last week's sermon, the foundation of Jesus. They're attacking point two, that household of faith, the redeemed household, the redeemed family. They're attacking point three, your hope in eternal life. They're pecking away at it with all of their distracting teachings. And I, for one, have never gone into one of these distractions in my own life thinking, oh, I'm going to undermine the faith. It's never that way. We never go into it trying to attack the, the, the apostolic faith once for all delivered to the apostles, right? There are those that will do that. But most of us ordinary people just start wandering a little bit like, like uh, you know, kind of like one of my children when I tell them to go clean up the room and they, the amazing the detours they find on the way to that job. So Paul uses the term paratheke in 1 Timothy 6.20. That which has been entrusted to you. It's this, it's a thing, it's a football, okay? He hands the football to Timothy. It's the paratheke. You need to guard this. Do not lose this at all costs. We all know that football games are decided, well, at least those of us that are football fans, the game is decided by turnovers. You turn that thing over, too many times, you cannot win. You know, your offense works so hard to get it down there, and boop, you lose the ball. And so leadership, redeemed leadership, if I can cheat a little bit and go into 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, let's look at that real quick. 2 Timothy 2.2, this is a great verse for restoring leadership. What you have heard from me, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, easy to remember, 222. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So here's the sequence. Me, Paul, you, Timothy, faithful men, others. A chain of four. And this relates particularly and specifically to eldership in the church. But my friends, it relates to all of us. What you have heard from Paul and trust these to faithful people who then can teach others. We should all be doing that. That's part of the restoration of the simple gospel. That's the leadership that we all need to be exercising. I could go on and show examples of how Paul shows this everywhere he goes, in Romans and 1 Corinthians and, and elsewhere. But let me simply conclude by applying this third point. What do we expect of our leaders do we want them to be experts on every little thing? Do we want them to take up our pet projects and run with them while the primary gospel message and its power, we're ignoring that in our lives? Paul charges Timothy in the presence of God. That's the kind of leadership that we need. Men and, and women who will charge us in the presence of God to keep our eyes on the prize. You know, another application that I thought of is sometimes Christians are worse than non-Christians. At least somebody that isn't a Christian doesn't claim to know everything about the faith. Sometimes we act like we've learned it all. We know it all. 
Being a know-it-all is not the kind of leadership that we need. So I began this morning by relating a phone call I got from my mom when I was 18 years old. I'd like to report that now my priorities are all perfectly aligned. <laughs> and I never get lost on tangents, especially not on the internet. Which is why I stayed up so late last night finishing this manuscript. No, I am not perfectly aligned. I am far from perfectly aligned. In fact, I am a case study in misalignment. And I think the reason God has me on this platform is to give you all encouragement. I do. So that you know that if God can work miracles in this sinner's life, there is hope for anybody. So since we are in such need of God's grace, let's ask him to keep our doctrinal priorities in place, shall we? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that you, you stir us up to love and good works by the unfolding, the revealing, the pulling back of the curtain of your word so that words perhaps that we've read many times are fresh and new and words that perhaps we've never read enlighten our minds. So Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you've spoken to us today and help us to live it out in Jesus' name. Amen.